I hope you have a friend like my friend Linda. Linda is 80 years old, so she has experienced a great deal of life. She's the epitome, the epitome of what it looks like when grace and tenacity are combined. And you can see that most in how she lives out her love for Jesus and the way that even at this point in life, she is risk-taking for him. But yet that's for another day, another conversation. Linda's been important in my life for a number of reasons, and it became very clear just a few years ago in a phone conversation we had. I was frustrated about something, and I thought I needed to vent. You know the feeling. Somebody isn't doing what you think they should be doing. Somebody isn't being who you think they should be. And we think that if we get out our frustration and declare what is going on, then the listener will surely agree that our perspective is indeed the right one, and we will feel justified. Sound familiar? So there I was venting to Linda. I have no idea what the topic was, and that's usually how venting goes. You get it out, and then you can't remember what you were venting about. But, but I do remember this, that Linda interrupted me in mid-sentence, and she said this, Jackie, that's not right. Yes, Linda, I know that's not right. That's what I'm saying. No, Jackie, you're not right. You're not seeing clearly. Jackie, that's not how God sees it. And while that really should have been enough right there, she had to continue on and cut me with these words. Jackie, you're not right. You're wrong. Ouch. What I remember is that we continued talking and she patiently but firmly made it very clear that my perspective was not anywhere close to the perspective that Jesus had on the circumstances. Hmm, how could that even be possible? How could I have possibly wandered so far from Jesus' view? You and I need a friend like Linda who will stop us in our tracks, make us take a hard look at ourselves, and all the while surround us with great love. What a gift that is to me. And even now I will text her. It's like a game we play. And I'll text her and say, can we talk? I'm not thinking right. <laughs> and I have no doubt that her face lights up and she knows, ooh, this is going to be fun. <laughs> We've spent the last few weeks looking at how God views the local church. And above all else, I think what we hope you have really come to see, as we have, is how much God deeply loves the church. How he's passionate about it. How he guides it. How he's present in it. And in our last up-close look at the church, we're going to find that God... When God launches a church, and God is in fact the one who launches a church, he does not leave it to fend for itself, but rather he speaks into the lives of the individuals in that church to guide them together, together towards a deeper, more intimate relationship with him. After hearing today's scripture that, that has already been read, you already know we're going to be looking at some difficult things. Words that Jesus spoke to a church that was not thinking right whose self-perception was far from reality. We will see Jesus giving a devastating diagnosis about who they were, along with a serious threat. But we will also find that Jesus does not leave them there, but in fact, he comes to them with not one grace-filled promise, but two. So let's look more closely at what Jesus says to this church, that he loved deeply. 
The letter is written to the church at Laodicea. It's the final letter that Jesus is writing to the seven churches. And he wants to remind them of who he is and that he has every right, every authority, and every reason to say to them what he's about to say. He says that he is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. When you and I hear that word, the, hear the word amen, we usually say, well, that's the end of the prayer or the end of the hymn. But in Hebrew saying, the amen had a much wider meaning. It was a way of acknowledging that something is valid, something is binding. Jesus is saying, that's me. I am indeed the amen. I am valid. What I say is binding. Another way he's saying is, I'm the bottom line. That's how it works. It stops with me. He says that he is the faithful and true witness, meaning that whatever Jesus says about God, whatever Jesus says about a situation, whatever Jesus says about individuals can be trusted. Jesus knows what he's talking about. And as a reminder, he adds, I'm the beginning of God's creation. Make no mistake. Jesus wants this church to know that he is the beginning of everything in their lives, in their church, and in their world. It all begins with him. Jesus has their attention. And much like the church that we heard about last week, I imagine that this church would have been eager. Like, yeah, 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 we know that. Oh, this is going to be fun. What's Jesus going to say to us? But then he interrupts their thinking and he cuts them. He cuts them with these words. I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold, but you're not. You are lukewarm. So what's going on here? Who were these people? What are they doing that gets such a response, a harsh one, it seems like, from Jesus? Simply put, Jesus is speaking to a church, to Christ followers, who live their life with the sense of being competent and self-sufficient, with no recognition of their need of Jesus. But you're thinking, but I thought Christ followers don't live that way. Evidently, they do. There's no doubt that it looked like they had every reason to feel that they were in control of their lives. You see, Laodicea stood at a junction of the trade routes, and there were many people coming through their town. It was a city that was a destination point for many people because the city itself was flourishing on many levels. It was the financial center of the region. They had many banks, and they were solvent. The economy was strong. When a devastating earthquake happened in 60 AD, they refused federal funding and said, we can take care of this ourselves. We've got it covered. They didn't need outside help. They were also famous for their clothing. The local farmers had developed a breed of black sheep whose wool had a beautiful purple hue to it, and the wool itself was of the finest quality. Clothes made from the wool were highly sought after. These were the best-dressed people in the province, and they paid particular attention to the details of their external appearance. The city was also famous for its medical school. It was especially famous for an eye salve that was made from minerals in the area that was believed to heal weak and failing eyes. But with all of those advantages to living in Laodicea, there was an important challenge that they experienced daily in living there. They did not have easy access to a supply of good water. A few miles to the north was a city where that was famous for its hot springs, just about five or six miles away. 
The hot water was known for its healing properties, and many people would go there for that purpose. Ten miles south, there was a town where the water was cold. The water was wonderful to taste when, when you were thirsty. But Laodicea didn't have the hot water or the cold water. They only had the foul, tepid water that when it arrived to them, it got there as it had traveled through the underground aqueducts. By the time it reached the city, it was neither the hot or the cold. It's not hot enough to relax and be restored, and it's not cool enough to be refreshed and have a thirst quenched. And anyone who wasn't used to the water would have spit it out of their mouth the first time they sipped it. But you see, when you have wealth, when you have exquisite clothing, and when you have access to medical care, when you live in a place where people want to come, it's easy to appear that you have it all. And if you have all of that, you can make yourself adjust and get used to the bad taste of the water. The phrase, we'd need nothing, could have been on the, the motto on the crest of the city. Sound familiar? But that motto had also become the driving theme of the church. You see, the church had, in fact, drunk in the spirit of the city, which the church everywhere and at all times has to fight against. No doubt they sang the hymns and read the scriptures about a living God being their only Savior and hope. But for all their words and for all their actions, they were still living with the false perception that they were, in fact, self-sufficient. And they boasted about it. That is why Jesus' words so strong come to us and to them as sounding just horrific. Verse 17, you say, I'm rich, and I've prospered, and I need nothing. But Jesus is saying, you don't even know that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus is breaking any illusion to anything that they are still holding on to. Jesus says, let me tell you how your perception is not only off, but you are completely wrong. Jesus says, you are poor. And the word that is used there means to be beggars. They have nothing to purchase what they actually need. What they need is forgiveness and entry into the kingdom of God, and they have nothing to bring. Jesus is saying, you may be rich in things, but you are bankrupt in the things of the Spirit. While the city was, could claim financial self-sufficiency, the church boasted of its own spiritual independence. Make no mistake, make no mistake, that material prosperity and comfort can never be confused with spiritual health and security. Jesus said, you were naked. Wow, that must have stung. The world was impressed with their style and fashion, but standing before God, God's not impressed with what they're wearing. Jesus calls them naked because they have no clothes to fit them to stand before the holy God. You were blind. Even though they had access to expensive eye ointment, they were not seeing things as they really are. They are blind because they are not even aware of their spiritual poverty, which put them in real spiritual danger. And because of those things, the church is hearing words they never imagined that they were about to hear. So because you are lukewarm, just like the water that you were trying to drink to keep yourselves alive, you give me such a bad taste in your mouth, I want to spit it out. I wonder, I just wonder in that moment, as John, the disciple who was recording all these things, he's writing all of the revelation that Jesus is giving him, 
is that there was a quick moment when John got how serious it was what Jesus was saying to them. You remember John had been there to hear Jesus on the great day of the feast stand up and cry out, If anyone is thirsty, let me come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. How far they had come from the rivers of living water to being lukewarm. Jesus is not only the amen, not only the faithful witness and the true witness, not only is he the beginning of all creation, but he is that vibrant, life-giving, living water. He had offered them that water, and they had compromised and settled for what was tepid, foul-tasting water in their spiritual lives. Why would they? Why would anyone settle so easily for so much less? It is amazing. It is truly amazing that the one church that Jesus says is in really deep trouble drew from Jesus incredibly intimate and loving promises. What does God do with a wretched church? He moves towards them. What does God do with wretched men and women? He moves towards them. He says, I have an incredible offer for you. Come and buy from me what you could never buy on your own. Look at verse 18. Buy from me gold refined in fire so you may become rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Buy from me salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. The key phrase there is from me. Jesus alone has the true riches. Jesus alone has the clothing to cover our sin and our shame. Jesus alone is the one who gives us eyes to see as he does. Jesus opens his hands to offer to those he loves all he wants to give to them in spite of who they've become. Jesus doesn't give up. The words that follow those words give us a window into his very heart towards us. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Jesus disciplines the church because he loves them. He loves them. The word that Jesus usually uses when he speaks of love is agape. It's decision love. But here the word is filio, affectionate love, love that feels, love that likes being with the beloved. Just as he did with the Laodiceans, Jesus is going to cut through our wrong thinking, our bad behavior, our wrong and misguided self-perception because he loves us. He does. When people don't want to hear what is in their long-term best interest, they need someone to speak truth into their life. No one does that better than Jesus. When people are hurting and broken and aware of their need of God, Jesus speaks kindly and with great compassion to them. When people are bent on self-reliance, Jesus makes sure they know where their true reliance can be found. And then Jesus moves from words of counsel to a command. The one who is the amen commands them to be zealous and to repent. Do it now. Turn around now. Be zealous, meaning keep on doing it. Keep on repenting so that your passion for Jesus may remain alive. But how? 
That is so much easier said than done. How can they become what they are not? How can they move from nauseating lukewarmness to healing hot and refreshing cold? Jesus simply says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Got that, Matthew? The lighting, you can't see it, but it's a painting that should be familiar to many of you. It's a painting by Holman Hunt that was painted in the late 1800s. And it's Jesus standing on that door. And he's waiting, and he has the light of his presence ready to go through that door. Many of you have heard that used for when people in an evangelistic way, where you want people to understand who Jesus is, that he wants to come into the life of someone who doesn't know him. But here's the, tr the twist for us. These words are written to the church, to those who already have known him, who already have known his grace, who already has known his voice in their lives. Jesus says, look, I am standing at the door and I'm knocking. I am right here and I have all you need. He's right here. We hear the knocking. It's knocking that may sound familiar to you because you've heard it before. And when we open the door and Jesus walks through it, he comes in with a purpose. Verse 20, he says, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. In the ancient world, table fellowship was re reserved for intimate friends. And the image that we are giving here by Jesus' words himself is that he wants to come join us at the table. And at that table, he's going to give us himself and he's going to give us everything we need. It was the Middle Eastern way of saying, I will make a covenant with you to be for you all I am, to share with you all that I am. No early Christian could have heard those words without thinking of the bread-breaking meal where Jesus comes in personal and powerful ways to give himself to his people. And there's even more. Jesus goes on to promise in verse 21. He says, To the one who overcomes, I will grant the right to sit down with me on the throne, just as I conquered and sat down with my Father on the throne. Jesus says he wants to come through the door, not only to sit at the table, but to lift us up to the throne. I will be honest with you and say I really cannot even come close to understanding how incredible that is. But because Jesus is the amen, and I believe that with as much as I know of who I am today, I know that that promise is faithful and true. Friends, some of you may have never turned the, the door of that handle before. You may never have opened it. You may know that you are spiritually bankrupt. You know that you are naked. You know that you're not seeing clearly. You know you need what Jesus is offering. Open the door. Do it now. Or you may have opened the door some time ago or maybe many times. But for whatever reason, you have slowly but surely excluded him and shut the door. That is why right now you may be feeling empty and stale, dry and even dirty. Welcome him back. Do it now. Friends, I can say that to you because he's here right now. Right now, right here with us.
Four years ago, this church graced me with a wonderful ordination worship service. They also graced me by allowing me to bring my friend Megan Hackman to fly her in from Washington State to preach that sermon. Some of you are nodding your heads. You remember that day. It was a wonderful day. And Megan was up there preaching, and I just felt proud and delighted and in awe of listening to a young woman that I had guided through seminary and helped her and her husband choose this church to serve in Washington State. I just felt delighted. And I was sitting right there on that bench, and when it was done, Megan came down, and she looked a little wide-eyed, to be honest, the big blue eyes, and they were, they were flashing. And she leans over, and she says, you didn't tell me. I said, I didn't tell you what? You didn't tell me. What didn't I tell you? She says, you didn't tell me that Jesus is here. She said, he was standing by me as I was preaching. He's never done that before. Jesus is here. Friends, I do not want to make that mistake again. I am here to tell you that Jesus is here. Open the door and let him come right in. Thanks be to God.